Hello and welcome to For Your Reconsideration, where three buddies chat all sorts of hot tripe until they eventually get to a movie a lot of people said was poor and see if that label is all a bit harsh. I'm Rob and here are Simon and James, my G-Units, how are you? Good. Might I say, it's five star tripe. It's not just, it's not just hot tripe, it's five star yes. tripe. <laughs> hot five star tripe yeah that's what i ask for when i go to my local butchers <laughs> are you both well fellas yes i am thank you rob yourself splendid splendid Sai, are you well uh i'm very flustered it's been a busy week but i'm all right it's a it's great to see you guys and i have a glass of prosecco because i didn't have time to go out for beers (laughs) (laughs) bless you get some fizzy endorphins going (laughs) yeah bringing a bit of class to the to the pod tonight you're always the one who does mate you with with your pinot and and, uh (laughs) you know it's all lovely um i I feel this is a little bit of an episode of fyr after dark tonight this is the latest i think we've ever recorded (laughs) i know yeah. So um, well, I've taken my trousers off for the occasion. So. <laughs> I never had mine on, James. <laughs> We're just three dudes sat here porky pigging it on a Friday night. <laughs> oh, right. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's <laughs> nothing wrong with that. We are past the watershed, so this kind of language is okay. Got <laughs> <laughs> language, porky pig. <laughs> That is a bad light. That is a slur. <laughs> says, says me who drops C-bombs liberally for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, we are firmly post-Watershed. Um, what have you chaps been watching this week? Um, well, we're all having a lovely time at the moment, so I think I'll, I'll bring it down just a few <laughs> notches. So. Uh, since we last spoke, I have watched two fantastic but quite harrowing films that deal with the subject of dementia. Oh. Yeah, that will bring it down. Thanks. Everyone's still having a good time? (laughs) Harrowing depression! So, yeah, the the first one I wanted to talk about was The Father, which is up for a few Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Actor for Anthony Hopkins. It's a well-made film that creatively uses production design and non-linear storytelling to put forward an unsettling representation of what it must be like to not only have dementia, but to care for someone with it. Uh, The film moved me greatly, and it provides a fantastic showcase for Hopkins, who absolutely knocks it out of the park. Uh, The other film that I saw was Relic. Have you guys heard of this film? Yes, I have. It's, it's not the Tom Sizemore not the Tom movie, is, is it? Em, is it Emily Mortimer's in this one? Yeah, so this one knocked me for six. It's an Australian film directed by Natalie Erica James. I think, Sai, you might have mentioned her on a previous episode. Yes. You've seen one of her shorts, maybe? Yes, this was the film that followed that short. So um, this is good. It's good to hear that this is a good film yeah oh yeah it's fantastic so this is her feature debut and it has the subtext of dementia running through it but it's uh, also a beautifully realized piece of slow burn domestic horror the film has this sort of tangible sense of tension and creeping dread that is present from the opening frame building to a poignant and emotionally shattering finale Honestly, both films absolutely destroyed me. And while I wouldn't recommend double billing them, they are very interesting companion pieces. On a slightly lighter note, 
my boy and I have been working our way through some of the Disney Renaissance movies, and we took in 1997's Hercules. Oh, that's a good which one. I had never seen before. And it is just delightful. It's so good. Danny DeVito is amazing in that, isn't he? It's great. It's perfect casting. The music. I can go the distance. Had the Michael Bolton version on this afternoon. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Going to segue to that later. It's on. as epic as you might imagine. Uh, but yeah, I mean, what more can you ask for? It's really funny, colourful animation, great songs and an excellent voice cast. It's just really, really good. I loved it. My my son, who's three years old, he wandered off to go and play with toys about halfway through. But I was like, shh, pipe down. We need to watch the end of this. This is stuff. It's great, isn't it? And it, like Hercules yeah. is, uh, is is Joshua from Friends. Yes. Just like a really random bit of casting. But he's really great in it. And then it's like James Woods before he turned into a right-wing maniac. <laughs> oh, no. Before he Kevin Sorboed. He did, yeah. <laughs> Oh, it's so depressing with James Woods because, like, you watch a film from like the eighties or the nineties where he crops oh, up man. and he's such a great actor, and then he's just mm. such a horrible, horrible person. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. so we can can. Sorry, I'm just going to cancel his guest appearance on the schedule. Uh, not that he was ever. What was the first of the two films? Sorry, James, that you mentioned. Yeah, so the father with Anthony Hopkins. Uh, oh, I think you're saying the father wrong. I think I- it's it's. The father. <laughs> With an extra large bed. One of those little refrigerators you open with a key. Credit card. You got it. You got it. Like, that is stupidly niche. I apologize. It's so good. You know, it's so pulling good. back. Something you said about four minutes ago. <laughs> I was initially thinking, like, have you been listening to him, Rob? He's, he fully explained what that first film was. I know, I know, I know, I know. I held it. I held it close to my chair. <laughs> because I could see myself on the software we used when Rob said I was saying it wrong. I went, am I? The panic that shot through my eyes for that split second. <laughs> no, you said it perfectly, James. It's just me being a very strange man. Sir Anthony Hopkins is the father. father. Oh, if the trailer was done in that voice. A delivered via via Macaulay Culkin and a top boy. boy. (laughs) Major major credit card upon checking. (laughs) Right, that's enough of that. So, what have you been watching, man? Oh, my days. Um, I've been watching all sorts of stuff. I started watching The Terror on BBC on the iPlayer, which is just fantastic. It's just about um, a Navy expedition in the 1800s that went down the North Pole or South Pole. I can't remember which pole it is. (laughs) And um, in Antarctica. And uh, they just mysteriously disappeared. So this is just a fictionalised account of what happened on this voyage. It's just full of amazing performances like really really good performances uh, yeah it's like a play really but it's just very well done so that's one to watch if you haven't seen that tv wise but i also caught a film uh i've been sort of trying to watch films that i haven't seen and probably should have seen and um one of them was recommended by my other half um she's been wanting me to watch it for ages and i just could never i was just never into it and i could never be bothered 
Um, but believe it or not, I'd never seen Castaway. So I finally watched mm. watched Castaway, uh, Robert Zemeckis and Tom Hanks film. It was really lovely. I really enjoyed it. It was very good. And I don't know if he won an, an Oscar for that. I don't think he did. But he, he was better in that. I, so I preferred that to Forrest Gump. I think it's a much better film yes, than Forrest Gump is. It is. For, the, for, the, for that director-actor combination. Um, it, they did do Forrest Gump, didn't they? They but, did, yeah. yeah. yeah okay, just checking. <laughs> so yeah, that, that was a, a jolly good surprise. And then um, on Saturday, on uh, Saturday just gone, my, my other half again, she wanted to have a day watching scary movies. So she uh, she was like, leave me in the living room for, for 10 minutes. And she'd built a fort around the sofa, so she'd got a dark bedsheet <laughs> and oh. hooked it up to the like curtain rail and the shelves on the wall and around the back of the sofa. So we were just encased in this dark sheet where over the telly, just this little fort to watch scary movies. <laughs> it was just amazing. It was so we had she had like a little bowl of snacks and and some beers and and stuff. Oh, it, was, it was absolute dynamite. That's a mad mad props to future. Oh, Mrs. It was Simon. brilliant. It was so good. Um, but it it it's still up by the way because I don't want to take it down because it's just <laughs> to really enjoy it. Um, but we uh we we each picked a film and we had like a double bill of British horror movies. That were based on stage plays. So we watched uh, The Woman in Black, which I'd never seen before. Scared the shit out of me. Scared the crap out of me. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was an ace movie. I thought it was wicked. Yeah, really good. I thought, and I, I just think Daniel Radcliffe is genuinely good. Yeah. He gets a lot of flack because he was in a big franchise movie and he wasn't great in the Harry Potter movies, to be honest. And he, he was the one thing that got better and better as those movies went on. Yeah. And I think he's just matured into a really good actor. Yeah. And especially when he's got that old timey, you know, lovely waistcoat and little collar <laughs> on, and he's holding a lantern. Yeah. Because um, he was in that uh, Young Doctor's Notebook as well with John Hamm. He was, yeah. And he was great in that as well. But the other film we watched was uh, Ghost Stories, which is Jeremy Dyson and Andy Nyman's film of their own stage play. And I'd seen the stage play years ago sat on the front row and it scared the bejesus out of me. <laughs> I, I was aware of this film and, and had seen it before and I'd, I'd, I've not seen anyone talk about it or see it or it's not really anywhere. And my other half had never seen it. So we sat down to watch that and it's great on a second viewing. It's really good. And it, it's got so many crap reviews on um, Letterboxd and in the papers and on websites and things like that. And, I think as a British, I might like it. I might be favourable because it's British and it's got some really good British talent in there. And I'm a big fan of Andy Nyman. Like, I'm not sure if many know that he's the sort of hidden half of Darren Brown's stage. Did not know that. Yeah, so he he's the he's the sort of second half of that creative partnership. But he sort of stays behind the scenes for all that sort of stuff. But it's good to see him front and centre for once. And and he's great on screen as well. I, I just think it's a really good movie. And it might not be like scary enough for the horror purists, but for someone like me, you terrible with scary movies, as we all know. And <laughs> uh, yeah, so we had a lovely day in our little couch fort watching those. That sounds amazing. <laughs> it does sound incredible. It was so good. Oh. Yeah, it was great. Mrs. Parker is about to get paged immediately. <laughs> well, I want a couch fort. I know. <laughs> it was brilliant. Anything less just great will time. not do. <laughs> um, I uh, for myself, I watched um, the first 
episode and a half of the Mighty Ducks TV show. Game oh, changed. Oh, was it good? Um, I enjoyed it a great deal. Are the kids into it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, to, so that now Fridays are an event. Um, I'm actually uh, not watching the new episode with them because I'm here with you guys. Oh, <laughs> so no, God. I'm Don't letting the family down. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Yeah. They've all gone to bed. They they always forget. They don't remember. It's just me who's like, it's a new Mighty Ducks day. Um, no, it's loads of fun. Um, Bombay's a different character, though. He feels different to the the, the original franchise. So, um, yeah, I'm interested to see where this goes. I saw a still of Bombay in this, and he looks like he's become hands. <laughs> <laughs> I do think he's in the process. I do, I do think that, that he's undergoing the crucial changes and stages of metamorphosis. Is he taking too much of an interest into strangers' children's careers? <laughs> <laughs> A hallmark of the Mighty Ducks franchise. Yeah, <laughs> he definitely is. Yeah, the other thing I've, uh, that we've been enjoying is another Disney Plus offering. Um, Disney Plus announced... Oh, I didn't announce anything, actually. It was only through cruising through trying to find Mighty Ducks game changers that I stumbled across the Star Wars vintage selection. I'm curious. Curious, yeah. It's the old um, cartoons for Ewoks and Droids. And uh, the uh, all the Ewoks movies that were that were awful, like Caravan of Courage. So <laughs> I was a huge devotee of the Ewoks cartoon for its two seasons running time, twelve episodes each. Um, so much so that um, they did like a, a, a sort of. They always used to have two adventures per episode, but in the in the second series they had like a one adventure like a full 25 minutes for one adventure. But the only way you could watch it was if you collected eight Dara Lee lids and sent them off to Dara Lee and they'd send you a VHS tape back for Night of the Strangers. Arguably the Ewoks episode with the most jeopardy. And it's absolutely, I honestly absolutely loved watching this. They've got them all on there. And it's like, you know, when you've already subscribed to something and they put something on there that you already really love, and it just feels like a Such gift. A bonus, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. So I'm like, yeah. So I've got all the kids, like, and all the kids now are saying all the all the sayings like "beach wawa and you know, like "dengar Ewoks." You know, it's so great. I'm having such a whale of a time with it. Um, it looks like it was animated at yeah, possibly eight frames a second, something like that. <laughs> it's not the smoothest. They have it's two both seasons are on there. At the mid season break, something's happened because they've changed. The theme tune, the video for the titles uh, and credits, the the design of the characters has all changed. They're all wearing... They look different. I don't know what's happened. It's one of the strangest mid-season jumps ever. But it works all for the better. It's great. Uh, go and check out Ewoks. <laughs> the cartoon on Disney+. Plus. Star Wars Vintage Collection. It's amazing. So what? It's like from the 80s or something? Simon, this is a disgrace. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm, just, I'm just very confused, but I've never heard of any of this. So, sorry, I'm going, to, right, I'm going to turn back my... Have you not heard of it? No, just never heard of all You've these things. I mean, things. I know of the Christmas, the famous Christmas special with the Ewoks in, but I don't know of any cartoons or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, I don't even think that's allowed on Disney Plus yet. But no, that's no, the dro- I, I, Droids was a bit... Uh, what didn't excite me very much. The Ewoks cartoon is rad. Uh, James, three-year 
two-year-old to three-year-old, my son to your son. He'll love that business. <laughs> oh, <laughs> my, cool. my kid loves it, honestly. It's ace. Yeah, and so loads of good stuff like, you know, n- nothing upsets my wife more than shouting, beat your wower <laughs> when, uh, <laughs> when something positive happens. So, um, so yeah, wicked. Um, right, tonight's film, uh, it's a listener request. We did a poll and you guys voted in your droves and we had a tie. It was outrageous. It's ridiculous. How do you have a tie? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, running polls on that Twitter account is the bane of my existence. <laughs> like, they never go smoothly. <laughs> Don't know why I bother. <laughs> what was it? It was like thirty-two percent, thirty-two percent, wasn't it? Two films. Yeah. And um, yeah. So um, because we are the podcast that cares, we're going to do both. Yes. Back to back. We are dubbing April the rainy season. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are, James. Because the two films will be hey, well. tonight's film, which is Black Rain. Next episode will be Rain of Fire. <laughs> it's so good. It, it's brilliant. I, it's quite I poetic. It's so, yeah, I, it is, we, isn't it? Yeah. It looks good. Cheeky pun. Honestly, I'm going to have to redo our art so that it reflects the rainy season. <laughs> <laughs> it, it will have to reflect that somehow. Um, but thank you all for voting. Yes. Black Rain is one that's come up a number of times on the uh, listener requests. Um, so we were really excited when this one finally, came out. Yeah, finally passed the oh, gate first. Half on top. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but it did spring a question, didn't it? <laughs> it did. Uh, so this film uh, centres around two characters who find themselves in a faraway land having to adapt to a culture hugely different from their own. So I wanted to know what your most memorable slash favourite slash iconic fish-out-of-water movies are. Mm. So obviously there's every JCVD film ever made because (laughs) I don't know where the hell that guy's from, but he's a fish-out-of-water in every single scenario. (laughs) There's a very definite element of of fish-out-of-water in um, Double Impact, though. You know where he's... You know, oh yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah. When he first arrives, like ah, bah, bah, Frankie, it's going to be great. Hey, I've got my lovely <laughs> Ralph Lauren and pink shorts on. <laughs> I'm dressed like Carlton from The Fresh Prince. Let's go and kick some ass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fr- that's. Uh, I was going to say fresh out of water. Yeah, that, fish that, out of water. That's a genuine. That's like fish out of water squared. <laughs> it is. Yeah. <laughs> Definition. Another good one is also of this parish is uh, Demolition Man. Oh, of course. Which yes, is yes. Yes, a brilliant yes, yes. fish out of water action movie where uh, John Spartan is thawed and has to take on the sanitized crime free utopia of San Angeles mm. as a man from the 90s, which automatically makes him super violent and super sweat. <laughs> <laughs> and super hunker chunker. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Uh, yeah, f- um, for me, Back to the Future is the absolute Mac Daddy, I think. Oh, of course, oh, yeah. nice. for me, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey's got lots of fish out of water moments for a number of characters, uh, but Napoleon doing anything is always very funny in that film. Beverly Hills Cop does that count? Yes, oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, the first half of Thor. Yes. I thought that was ace. Yeah, that is. I thought it was good. really good. When he wanted more coffee, like, I enjoy this. <laughs> Smash. <laughs> Give me more. Did I just mention a Marvel movie? You did. No, I did. I did. I th- I did you know what, Rob? I think we might have seen that Marvel movie together when we were still, we when we were still devoted to that train. I've yes. The only one I haven't seen, actually, I say I'm not devoted. I, I catch up with them. I'm not. Dead eager to see them all the time, but I think we were st- we were on that train. I think we might have gone to see Thor 
together. I think we might have done, yeah. Um, I, yeah, interesting. Um, but I really enjoyed that first half of that film. Well, I enjoyed the whole film, but the first half, it's good for fish out of water thing. Yeah. But my absolute favourite will not be the one that will get many critical plaudits, and it's a pick, future pick for me for this podcast, is I Spy with Owen Wilson and Eddie Murphy. Because Eddie Murphy is um, a boxer recruited into the spy world. Uh, You know, he's a brash super middleweight, and they need him because he's got access to some corrupt... Have you guys seen this movie? I've never seen this movie, no. Really? It was in the bad Eddie Murphy phase, wasn't it? I I didn't bother with this. No, no, this was the good... This was the one good Eddie Murphy phase. No, this was so much... I loved this movie. But the the moment that resonates with me, and I don't even... I'm not sure whether I want to say it, really, but is where um, Owen Wilson's a spy, believe it or not. (laughs) And um, he's um, seducing, or trying to seduce... Famke Janssen, and, oh. uh, but he doesn't know how to do it. So he's, but he's got spy tech. So he puts like, you know, his contact lenses. I think it, I think it is, are like cameras, and they can show if Eddie Murphy's wearing the reciprocating contact lenses, he can see what Owen Wilson is looking at. So, oh, uh, Eddie Murphy, the boxer Kelly Robinson, is talking Owen Wilson through a seduction, and he's just he's saying, you know, now come on, now you want to be. Like talk like Marvin Gaye now, <laughs> and you know, you gonna know, say, uh, "I got this feeling, I got a sexual healing," you know, <laughs> and it's absolutely superb. And and when the seduction works, and then um, the best moment of the film is when the guy t- uh, Owen Wilson takes the contacts out, and uh, Eddie Murphy sat there on a bed in a room going like, "Hey, hey." Hey, come on now. <laughs> come on now. Because he wants to see what's happening. <laughs> it's, it's one of those moments that I just think is just ace. In a, you know, in a movie that's perhaps lauded as subpar, when there's a really good moment in it, I always thought that was such a good moment. Um, but yeah, sorry, I went on a little bit there. I apologise. So what what are your... What sprang to mind for you? I've got two really random ones, I think. Um, I I actually think this first one we we studied this at uni I think um it was Norman Jewison's In the Heat of the Night starring Sidney Poitier oh yeah um as a detective passing through a town in in deep south Mississippi uh who sort of becomes embroiled in a in a murder investigation when he's like accused of being the culprit purely because of his race great film incredible it's just a really enduring movie um. Sadly, still resonates today, even though it's yes. what fifty years later or something, um, with its themes of prejudice. And- yes. Does anybody else have this thing where someone says uh, Sidney Poitier, and you automatically go to David Brent in the second series of The Office? It's not my favourite actor, though. <laughs> that would be Mister <laughs> Sidney Poitier. Poitier. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, on our, you know, one of our other Pod Dojo uh, podcasts. Uh, really 007's um, host, Mr. Tom Pickup, there is no one on the planet who says the name Sidney Poitier quite like he <laughs> Poitier. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. That It's like it's an untouchable film, that one. It's a really great movie. And I, I just remember watching that in... Um, we watched it in the showroom cinema, didn't we? That's where we used to watch films on our course and in Sheffield. We did, yeah. Usually hungover because it was the day after... Night Those in, screenings were so dude. fucking early. And it was dead like nine like in the morning. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. But uh, it it blew me away that film. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Such a good movie. And then the other one, complete opposite end of the spectrum in terms of tone, 
and you know I love a bit of Disney, uh, Enchanted. Yeah! Which sees Amy Adams thrust from her fairy tale kingdom into a very real life New York City. It's such a good film. It's really funny. It really is. It's a, a, a genuinely hilarious parody of Disney by Disney. And just has some great performances in it from Adams, Amy Adams herself, and then Susan Sarandon, who's the who's the the, the wicked witch, and uh, reliable everyman James Marsden is in it, uh, who plays who plays the Prince Charming, who has a sword fight with a boss. It's just really good. <laughs> it's a but it's a re- it's a it's a great film. And Amy Adams is amazing in it. She just does that like plays that animated princess so well in real life. Um, all her expressions and stuff. Like, uh, yeah, that was one what really surprised me. That so I thought it was worth mentioning for this question. Oh, definitely, oh, it's, that's such a great movie. I think you know, like quietly, such a great movie because it's got all the elements that you need for grown-ups to enjoy and also kids to enjoy. Kids will enjoy all the fairy tale elements. The adults, there's so many in jokes in that film as well about these character, these sort of cartoon characters coming to the the real world. Brilliant performances. Timothy Spall is in that movie as well. He is, yeah. He's like a little minion, isn't he? He is, yeah. Uh, And also mentioned to Idina Menzel as well um, of. Let it go. Uh, the wonderfully talented Idel Dazine. <laughs> <laughs> I've never That's seen Enchanted. I've never seen Enchanted. It's good. It's really it's good. good. It's really good. Uh, I'm going to check it out. Uh, we had a couple suggestions from uh, our knowledgeable listeners as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, so LJ Human says that he enjoys the update of Jumanji because that has a fish out of water element with the kids being oh, yeah, dropped yeah. into the into the world of the game. And then he mentioned a film as well that I'd never heard of before. Big fans of Michael J. Fox on this podcast. Mm. And apparently there's a, a star vehicle for him called The Secret of My Success, which is also a very good fish out of water movie, according to LJ. So I don't know anything about that film. Dude, I'll have to no check idea. it out. Mm, no. no idea. And then we got a couple of good ones from C- Craig Jarvis, uh, Crocodile Dundee. Oh. Remember what a cultural moment that was oh, back in yeah, the early 90s. So good, wasn't it? I mean, I was a small child. I don't think anyone knew Australia existed, did they, before they saw Crocodile Dundee? <laughs> yeah, is it, is it one of the... Like... <laughs> Main touchstone moments for bringing Australia to the wider world. Yeah. It probably is. You couldn't move for it. Everyone was it so was into crazy. Crocodile Dundee. I couldn't believe it. And then another one, which is a personal favourite of mine as well, is My Cousin Vinny, which oh, is a great a Joe Pesci, yeah. Marissa Tomei comedy, where uh, they, as New Yorkers, uh, go to Alabama to defend uh, Ralph Macchio. Ralph Macchio, but... yeah. Daniel <laughs> yeah. Sam. They always forget the karate kids in that movie. <laughs> so that leads us on to uh, tonight's movie. And uh, listeners, you cooked up a storm for us with Black Rain. A New York City cop <laughs> on the trail of a killer. From the back alleys of Manhattan. Our victims are certainly Yakuza. To the streets of Japan. Because of your negligence, a man we've wanted for a long time has been lost. Come on, we'll take some of the heat for this, but we're not taking the rap. Rap. 
to see there's a war going on here between Sato and an old-time boss named Sugai. And they don't take prisoners. So where's your boss? This is in New York. We have rules here. I've seen Sato's work, okay? He ain't following your program. You are foreigners. Nothing more than interested observers. No one's gonna help a Kaijin. Kaijin. You're a barbarian, a foreigner. Me and you. More you. Try to work like a Japanese. Now, this is good. This ain't money. You got a counterfeiting war going on, guys. You are civilians here. It is illegal for you to carry a gun. <laughs> Something tells me we should cut our losses and let the locals handle it around here. I can't go back without him, Charlie. You have no part in this. I am the solution to your problems. Well, it's not over yet. Here I am, Nick! You can get him, boss. You and me. Michael Douglas. Black Rain. So, gents, Black Rain. Finally. <laughs> Finally. What is your relationship with, with, with this movie? James, I'll start with you. What? I have zero relationship with this movie. I've never seen it. I'd never really heard of it before it was requested. So when I found out that there was a Michael Douglas renegade cop movie set in 80s Japan and directed by Sir Ridders of Scott, <laughs> I was pumped to see it. Yeah, same. I can't believe... Because uh, I'd never heard of it either. And I, when we started doing this podcast, um, when I was, worked in the office, uh, I used to stay late to record in, the, in, in my edit suite because it was soundproof and it was just a really good place to record. And um, there was this chap called Phil who was the, the sort of just every man who... The poor guy who had to sort out everyone's shit <laughs> on the tech side. And he was... He listened to a few episodes of the podcast and we'd talk about it when I was like after recording stuff. And he was like, oh, you should do that film, Black Rain. I was like, what the fuck's that? <laughs> <laughs> and he, went, he was like, oh, it's Ridley Scott. I was like, Ridley? What? No, it's surely not Ridley Scott. I would have heard of it, surely. Michael Douglas is in it. Oh, fuck off. What? <laughs> Set in 80s Japan. I was like, how have I not seen this movie? He's ticking all the boxes. So how I can't believe I had seen this movie. So since Phil, um, if you're still listening, Phil, um, hi. Uh, <laughs> Since Phil mentioned it, it's been on the polls every time because it's like, I should really want to watch it. <laughs> so, yeah, finally got here. Yeah, I, I'm with you guys. Um, I was aware there was a film called Black Rain that looked rad uh, because <laughs> um, the poster, the art is so good for this. It's incredible. The poster is great. It's so it? wicked. But it's the same colour tone and same overall look as the Christian Slater Morgan Freeman movie. What's it called? Hard Rain. Hard Rain. So, yeah, for a while, um, in the sort of like late 90s, early 2000s, I thought that Hard Rain was a sequel to this. 
but they'd recast everybody. <laughs> and I'd just never seen the original. So um, rest assured, listeners, that is not categorically not the case. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, I didn't know anything about this at all. Literally at all. Mm. So this is this is like you sometimes a couple of times on the pod we've come together and between the three of us we've not seen it but we've got an awareness of it. This is we are going in blind tonight. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's good for us because we've we've talked about this for like nearly two years <laughs> yeah. doing this movie, and all of us have resisted watching it until this very week. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's well, very yes, true. to the point that we all agreed we'd we'd record late so that we could all finish it. That's my fault. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, exciting, exciting. Um, yeah, Ridders. I did not know this was a Ridley Scott movie. Unreal. It's crazy, isn't it? So it, this was coming off the like the tail end of a really bad run of Ridley Scott films, wasn't it? So uh, was it this legend? Blade Runner didn't do too well as well, did it? Yeah. Blade Runner sort of started that run of really badly received, badly really? performing at the box office films. Yeah, there was another cop movie that he did right before this called Someone to Watch Over Me with Tom Berenger. And it, I, I don't know what was happening. Maybe after the... Because it's it's unbelievable now to think of it, given the cultural impact that it's had, that Blade Runner was not a well-received mm. film when it was initially released. So I guess he was just maybe searching for a hit during that time or something that would, you know, get him back into the into the A-list. Uh, and then he was doing, he'd been drawn, drawn to more genre pictures, perhaps. Mm. You know, considering Ridley Scott is... Without question, one of the biggest names in terms of movies and most influential directors for filmmakers everywhere nowadays. Yeah. And it's so weird to see that a really large portion of the 80s, most of his movies completely tanked. That's insane. And then his, his run sort of ended with Thelma and Louise when he when he won some Oscars for that. I forgot he did Thelma and Louise. Yeah, I think that was 91 and this was 88, 89, was it? Mm. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, Ridley is ridiculous. He He's still going now. He's in his 80s. Mm. He's got two films coming out this year. Has he? <laughs> and all the TV oh, is producing as well because he, pro- he produced The Terror. Yeah. And uh, the Raised by Wolves as well. He he directed a couple of episodes of that, and he never stops. He hasn't stopped working at all since 1977. He's uh, and Jay yeah, would have had. He's got a film called The Last Jewel, starring Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, Adam Driver, that was due to come out last year, but obviously got delayed because of the pandemic. Uh, I think that's going to come out this year, and he's shooting a movie at the moment with Adam Driver, Lady Gaga. I think I saw Al Pacino was in it. Everybody's in this movie. Oh, yeah, the Gucci uh, one. Which is, a Gucci, which is about the Gucci family, I believe. And that's that's going to be out either late this year or early next year. It's just incredibly prolific. And he's in his 80s and he's working during a pandemic that targets people of his age. It's incredible. <laughs> what a man. Seriously. Yeah. That's amazing. It's really, really good. Oh, dear. There's, I mean, there's so much to unpick. As we progress in this, you know, when you go in blind, so rather than unpick any more of the cast crew or anything like that, I'm going to save that till we start seeing the credits in the film because it starts with something absolutely mm. hilarious. So I'm going to wait till then. Uh, <laughs> but um, so let's look at qualification then. Um, James, budget and box office. Is this how we get this through the door? Okay, so uh, Black Rain was released in the United States on September 22nd, 1989. 
In its opening weekend, it grossed $9.6 million in 1,610 theatres in the United States and Canada. That put it at number one at the box office, and it stayed at number one in the box uh, at the box office uh, for two more weeks afterwards. The film grossed a total of $46 million in the United States and Canada and $88 million in other territories for a worldwide gross of $134 million against a budget of $30 million. So Whoa. it was a big old hit. Oh, nice. This. And it's actually seen as a bit of a return to form for Ridley uh, after the after the barren lands <laughs> that was the 80s. So uh, I think Simon will touch on the critical reception in a moment. Uh, but yeah, this was actually seen as a solid hit that sort of put him back in a good position again. Nice. From a financial standpoint and box office standpoint, certainly. Why have we never heard of it then? I'm so, <laughs> I just can't get it. This is just, again, it's confounding me at this point. Yeah. Huge hit. Crazy. It was the number five hit in Japan that year as well, I think, because uh, obviously it's got a, quite an illustrious Japanese cast as well, given the setting. Mm. Uh, so it did very well overseas, and yeah, it's it was a huge hit. So, it, but it's left no cultural impact whatsoever. <laughs> They've really brushed under the carpet, didn't they? Man, <laughs> so it has to be critical then, because that you can't qualify on those numbers at all. Sai. Yeah, I am honestly so surprised by those box office numbers because I just figured because this is a film which, not not I'm not just speaking like arrogantly going, oh, I've never heard of this film, and therefore it must have been badly. But I, <laughs> no one's ever mentioned this film to me ever, and I've never seen it on anything when they talk about old movies and things like that. So, yeah, that really surprises me. But yes, on the critical side, there's not an abundance of high-profile reviews to go off. Like, really, you know, it's a bit difficult when it's like a film from this long ago with it being 89. Um, but it does very much qualify as it sits slap bang in the middle of Rotten Tomatoes with a score of 50%, which classes it as rotten, therefore does qualify. Um, and it sits at 56 on Metacritic, with an audience score on there of 7.0 in comparison to Rotten Tomatoes, 55. So just middling all round, really. Sadly, there's no input from the sheriff on this mm-hmm. one. I couldn't find one readily available on the old Tinterwebs. But Roger Ebert gave it two out of his customary four, saying, even given all of its inconsistencies, implausibilities and recycled cliches, Black Rain might have been entertaining if the filmmakers had found the right tone for the material. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the criticisms kind of echo that, really, uh, with a few taking umbrage at the potentially xenophobic undertones of the film, with David Nusser of Real Film Reviews calling it a relic of the 80s that deserves to stay there. but. Mike Clark of the of USA Today gave it a big fat five stars on Oof. release uh, and said, it's really funny, this review, because he gets the name of the film wrong twice. No. <laughs> How do you get the name of this film wrong? Like purple? I don't know. Hail? But I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say the right name of the film for the for the sense of legibility. Uh, he says, "Black Rain" is a 126 minute genre movie stacked for effect. When you see Douglas racing his motorcycle at the beginning, you know what the climax will be. Scott, though, may be the definitive state-of-the-art movie maker right now, and Black Rain is the most aggressively cinematic movie in a while. Oh, yeah. So he was well into it. Letterboxd, it currently sits at 3.1. So pretty good, actually, pretty considering high, yeah? So, yeah, some of the films we do are in the lowly teens. <laughs> <laughs> <on Letterboxd. laughs> 
so yeah, it's it's not too bad with the with the old general film going public. Um, with and there's a lot of favorable reviews from like recent watches. Actually, you know, we were seeing it this decade rather than the one it was made in. I mean, obviously, Letterbox wasn't around in 1989, but uh, you know what I mean. Um, this was a one I pulled out mainly because of the username. Really, um, this was watched by Tim Cop. <laughs> Yes! Uh, who gave it four stars and said, uh, a Ridley Scott movie that people seem to hate because I guess they compare it to other Ridley Scott movies. But if you pit it against practically any late 80s, early 90s Steven Seagal cop film, it measures up quite nicely. <laughs> right, that's enough. <laughs> it was going so well. Tim Cobb. <laughs> uh, but he gave it four stars. But th- no, there's a there's a there's a lot of like battling on Letterboxd because it's like those who think it is it is a xenophobic, slightly racist and offensive, uh, arrogant American portrayal of Japanese culture. But then others who are saying that it's actually good to watch this nowadays because it's not as bad as you would expect it to be, or it's really not as bad as those uh though you know the level of that people are accusing it of being um in terms of those weird undertones but um yeah very middle of the road very interesting um can i just uh, uh this is more of a point of information that i think you'll find interesting and our listeners will find interesting is about rotten tomatoes obviously we use that as part of our metric don't we of uh fresh or not fresh 50% and upwards Film uh, BBC Scotland film critic Stephen Carty, listening to him recently, he was saying that um, when you submit a review to Rotten Tomatoes, as a reviewer, you've got a separate portal to everyone else, and you put it on there, and they decide where you sit with the red splat or the green splat based on what it is you've said. So he gave something three out of five, and they decided that was uh, rotten and gave it a green splat. And that seemed quite harsh to me. And he said, like, but I didn't feel that way. It was just like a three-star movie. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Because three, three out of five is 60%, isn't it? It's better than middle. Mm. If, I, if I rate something as a three-star, then for me, that means that, yeah, it's perfectly fine. Yeah. Like, it's not, it's not, not life-changing, but it's, it's well-made and it's, it's decent and I enjoyed it for what it was and blah, blah, blah. And then... Anything below three is then, yeah, would then class as, as rotten, in, in my mind, anyway. I think so. Yeah, I totally agree. Three is totally passable for me. Absolute middle. But um, no, not according to Rotten Tomatoes. So when it came up that he'd seen Iron Man 3 early and uh, he gave it three out of five and it got uh, put on, you know, as a rotten... They decided, Rotten Tomatoes decided that was rotten and put it on their website as rotten. He got death threats for, for, from the Marvel crowd about that. Um, and he got so many death threats that his wife made a plaque. Oh, that's very nice. nice. What, of the death threats? <laughs> With all the death threats written on it. Yes! <laughs> He's a top man, is Stephen Carty. But yeah. Jesus Christmas. It's, it is a weird one, Rotten Tomatoes. I mean, we don't use that as a sort of be all and end all mm. way to sort of look at the quality of films. We just look at it as an excuse to pick the films we do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we do. We use the general percentage, don't we? But I found that really interesting that they that they then, if you go in with a three out of five, they decide on the day whether that's a rotten or fresh. It's quite interesting. Mm. Should we get into this film? Oh yeah. Absolutely. A film in association with Michael Douglas. This is it, man. What does that mean? <laughs> I, like, initially, I'm blown to bits. 
What does in association Die Hard in association with Bruce Willis? What does this mean? I assumed he was a producer on the film, but then when I looked at the credits, he's not. But everyone forgets about Michael Douglas, is that he is an Academy Award winning producer. He won Best Picture for producing One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and as a result, has his own production company. Mm. So I don't know if that's just a way to sweeten the pot for him when he when he stars in a movie, that it's tied in with his production company. But yeah, it didn't make a tremendous amount of sense because it's <laughs> so not the most funny. dynamic name for a production company. Well, not, <laughs> so, not within three <laughs> titles' time, you say Michael Douglas. <laughs> yes. it, do, it doesn't make any sense. It's like that picture of that Mark Jacobs coat, and it's like Mark Jacobs by Mark Jacobs, designed by Mark Jacobs, exclusively by Mark Jacobs for Mark Jacobs. <laughs> Courtesy of Debenhams <laughs> and Mark Jacobs. <laughs> He's very much like that. I don't understand it. So who's this appealing to? I, 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 what's this for? I don't get it. Michael Douglas's agent will have negotiated for that within the credits, basically. And that I, probably sweetened the pot for it. I'm speculating. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know that for a fact. But you've got to remember as well, at this point, Michael Douglas is, is hot shit. He's really, really one of the A-list at this point. Mm. So... He's, as I said uh, earlier, he was an Academy Award winning producer and then he uh, he was a television actor. In the early 80s, he does Romance in the Stone for Zemeckis. That makes him a leading man in his own right. And then in 1986 or 87, he wins the Oscar for uh, playing Gordon Gecko in Wall Street. And this is the first, this is his return film two years later, having oh, is it? Wow. having become a newly minted Academy Award winning actor. And that's how it used to work back in the day, is that you win an Oscar and then you go and do a massive movie <laughs> afterwards. Um, and yeah, so this was his shot to go in and be a, be a big action hero. And this is very much... This era now is very much the Michael Douglas era, yeah. isn't it? From 1986 to about 1994. It totally is. If I had to do a personification of that sort hmm. of eight-year period, if I had to draw a person who embodied that, it would look a lot like Michael Douglas, essentially. <laughs> yes, in Black Rain, yeah. especially. Or, you know, on the verge of a nervous breakdown or as a sex pistol. <laughs> In movies, in, in movies, it's not real ones. Because I noticed on on the sorry, sorry, written somewhere that at the time this was the most expensive movie ever made, incredible, like thirty yeah. odd million dollars or something like that. So makes a lot of sense now that is the case and why Douglas was attached because he's a big name, he's a marquee yeah, yeah. signing for Ridders. Yeah, you can't under you can't underestimate the cachet that winning an Oscar used to give you back in the back in the 80s in terms of the jump for your career. Like, you went... I mean, Michael Douglas is already a well-established actor by that point. I think he'd been in Fatal Attraction, Romance in the Stone, Jewel of the Nile, all, all that all that stuff. So he's a well-established leading man anyway at that point. And obviously he's descendant from Hollywood royalty. But once you get that minted Oscar, it's like, right, bosh, this guy is A-list. Let's get him in our movie as soon as we can. Mm. And I, I, generally speaking, really like Michael Douglas as an actor. Oh, yeah, totally. those late 80s and early 90s movies that he was starring in. Mm. I think he's infinitely watchable, as his is gorgeous, greasy mullet. <laughs> <laughs> I think he, he's, he brings um, a very intense charisma to everything he's in, which um, is great. I think he's brilliant. I really do. I, I, I can't remember a film that... Um, I've not enjoyed when he's been in it. Even if it's just watching him, if the film is absolute 
Hornswoggle, he's always good in it, <laughs> in that Hornswoggle. So, he is always good. Yeah, he's always good. Um, but you're right, I, I wonder sometimes whether, in, in terms of, certainly in a modern sense, whether he's, and I don't know, maybe it's not fair to say, has he eclipsed his father? I don't know, but... He's certainly a massive Hollywood icon in his own right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, they've both done all right. Yeah, they've both done all right. I think that's right. a fair way to look at it, James. Yeah. <laughs> Rather, we're not going to make people, father and son compete here. Not on FIR. Who would win in a fight, Michael Douglas <laughs> or Kirk Douglas? A celebrity deathmatch would fight, definitely fight. do that. <laughs> um, but it, the, the phrase, in association with, is very, very interesting. It's very funny. Yeah, it's really funny. Because like, like, if, if, if it was like something like, in association with Joel, silver i'd be like well that's interesting <laughs> you know but in association with the actual star of the movie whose mo- whose name is going to get pop in about three seconds time that is also very <laughs> interesting yeah. um but that was that was incredible and then the credits just keep giving up the names oh. like mad it's insane shot by yander bond yeah pre-flatliners yeah um <laughs> uh, tom rolf was the was the editor um who who caught taxi driver and and heat as well he did he was he was the Zimmerman on yeah, the Hans Zimmer, Zimmer on the keys. And, and can we add, you know, spoiler alert, incredible score. Oh absolutely sensational. It score. goes to so many friggin' places. It's just so good. It's, it's yeah. off, it's rocking. <laughs> it really is. It's so good. It's super. Um going into this, I had no expectations whatsoever, nor knowledge. So I deliberately didn't read anything from the minute I pressed play. So I didn't know this was a Ridley Scott film until <laughs> directed by Ridley Scott. <laughs> what? Um, I didn't know Andy Garcia. I knew Michael Douglas was in it because of the poster, but I didn't know Andy Garcia. I didn't know that uh, Kate Capshaw was in this as well. didn't know about Yander Bont. So when I saw all this pedigree just flying around everywhere, it was insane. It's absolutely insane. John Spencer as, uh, as Douglas's police captain. So John Spencer, a.k.a. Womack, and uh, Leo from the West Wing. No, is that who it is? Womack. Yeah, yeah Womack. I should have known it was you. You piece oh, of yeah. shit. You piece of shit. <laughs> what a delivery. Yeah. I did. I missed that as well. Early Womack, yeah. Lovely. <laughs> it's outstanding. We're at the point where um, Michael Douglas is, is doing some... I mean, he's doing some incredibly 80s biking with no helmet. And I enjoy all this stuff. This is ah. great. Ah, this is why we're here. And already you know this is shot. Ridley Scott, Yanderbont, what a team. And uh, Front Street, this movie looks incredible. Really does. Oh, it's really one of the best looking movies we've ever done on this Definitely podcast. Definitely is. From a technical filmmaking standpoint, there is no faulting this movie. To, well, there is actually. There's a couple of things towards the end which I'll bring up. But in terms of shot composition and the way they're lit mm. and the editing exactly. and just the, the lighting, everything like is top, top. Because... You know, Ridley Scott, he is a top craftsman. He used to work in advertising. His movie, Mm. whether the movies are good, bad, or indifferent, they always look phenomenal. Mm. He does not scrimp on the visual style of any of his movies. Yeah, absolutely not. It's very true. And this this little bike race he does, and it's like a... Just a little riverbank race from the Brooklyn Bridge to the Williamsburg Bridge, isn't he, with some young guy on a superbike, and he's on his, like, Harley. Yeah. This is where I noticed how good the editing was, was just on this race. It's just cut so well and it's shot so well. And yeah. it's just a very well put together film. 
And then even though it's 89, it's got this kind of back end of the 70s look. Um, and all that is kind of summed up in this first 10, 20 minutes. Yeah. Where you get this bike race and you get gnarly Michael Douglas, who's, I don't play by the rules kind of cop. <laughs> His partner, played by Andy Garcia, who's more suited and booted type of cop. But I have to say, um, I was very confused by Andy Garcia's accent in this film. <laughs> is that his real accent? Or is he, what is he doing? I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> I don't know. He annoyed me in, in, immensely in this film. Did he? To be honest. Yeah. <laughs> he was yeah. so annoying. I, I, in life, in movies, I cannot stand overly gregarious people who just like walk <laughs> into places and they're everyone's best mate. And everyone's like, oh, just stop touching me. Just dial it down. Stop trying so hard, Andy Garcia. Go back over there. Take your rug of love and go back over that side. James, I don't know how we're such good friends. Because that's, that's my shtick. <laughs> no, you don't go around touching people and getting up in everybody's business like Oh, Andy Garcia, particularly when he gets to Japan, he's so annoying. <laughs> oh, I, I, it's funny because Andy Garcia, um, I, I just I think he's a really underrated screen presence. Garcia, I see. I do. I th- I think he usually is, but I-, I was very surprised at what we got in this film. I was just like, is that- he's he's obviously just sort of going for it, and you know, yeah. make an impact while he's there. Because we, yeah, spoiler alert. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's basically Richard Hammond to Douglas's Clarkson. Like he's just his little <laughs> sidekick. He's like just backing him up and just being a little annoying turd. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you just you just rubbed me the wrong way. I really right? Because the whole him. thing is is that uh, Douglas is being investigated by Internal Affairs, mm. isn't he? And Garcia's like dressed like a mobster outside the police station, like he's got Italian loafers on and all mm. sorts. And it's like investigate him. He's on the take as well. Clearly, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> Look at his wardrobe. No police officer dresses like that. <laughs> And he's like, oh, just like, oh, don't worry about it, mate. It's going to be fine. Just go in there. Do you think it's like you're not the one being investigated here? And he, oh, it's just his carefree attitude. It just it rubbed me up the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> Probably says more about me than it does about the character of Charlie Vincent. Ridiculous name as well. <laughs> Two first names. Yeah. Uh, Douglas plays Conklin. Yeah. And uh, Nick Conklin. What a name that is, by the way. He is an extremely troubling character. And. I think in lesser hands, I wouldn't have gone along with him at all. Because mm. what I would say is this is the start of an unofficial trilogy of Michael Douglas playing tossers called Nick. <laughs> so <laughs> the other entries in this franchise, I'm calling it a franchise. Uh, in association with Michael Douglas. Yes, in association with Michael Douglas. Yeah. So the other uh, entries in this franchise are uh, Basic Instinct and The Game, where he plays Detective Nick Curran and Nicholas Van Orton, respectively. So, yes. Do you think people just name them Nick as a nod to the previous time he played a Nick? It's very (laughs) coincidental, isn't it? He might get the script and go, yeah, I like the character. Can he be called Nick? I look like a (laughs) Nick. He does look like a Nick. It works for it. it. When I'm playing a tosser, I want to be a Nick. This guy's an asshole. <laughs> yeah. He's got to be a Nick. Nicky's an asshole. Yeah, that works for me. Let's go. For- <laughs> that works right. That works right. <laughs> and make sure you get that in association with at the front. <laughs> I don't know why he's turned into Janice from Friends. <laughs> 
I do really like Douglas as Nick Conklin because it's like we've walked into like a the third movie of like a Dirty Harry yes, trilogy yeah. or something, and he's looking a bit haggard and world weary, and he's obviously seen and done some shit. Yeah, you, you've got a nine hours worth of backstory crammed into ten minutes just because of how he looks and how he behaves and how he's under investigation by Internal Affairs and all that. And I, I really like how how that's done. And credit to Douglas for that. And Garcia, I guess, even though he's annoying as balls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to tactfully delete my note. Garcia is really good in this movie. So uh, um, it also feels like it's part some part of the same universe somehow as French Connection. Somehow. Yes, yes, you know, absolutely. it's got that definite vibe to it. Um, cops doing dodgy things because they feel deep down it's the right thing to do. Mm. On a level, you know, on a level only they can reconcile. Um, and those characters, I love those characters. Those characters are the characters that I find interesting, that mm. I want to read about, that I want to watch. The characters that make compromises of themselves. Nick Conklin is exactly one of those characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. So him and Charlie Vincent are in a, they're in a restaurant, aren't they? In oh yeah, um, in New York. He's and... mates with everyone, isn't he, James? <sighs> Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> Get over here. Yeah, um, Come and have some of this. Yeah, it's just this. Drink this. It's purely circumstantial, <laughs> isn't it, that they're there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a Yakuza boss having a meeting with a mafia boss in New York, and then uh, some Japanese heavies come in and interrupt their dinner, and, um, yeah, a lot of stabbing goes down. It's, pretty, it's violent. This yeah. In a restaurant. And then the mafia guy's like... Hey, is you keep you keep to your own business. Enjoy your dinner. It's like I'm gonna enjoy my dinner when a guy's just got his throat slit like <laughs> two yards away from me, rigatoni. Like yeah. look at <laughs> Lovely precise pasta. <laughs> this is a genius way to introduce uh, the baddies. So for a Western audience, maybe they're not as familiar with Yakuza or Japanese gangsters. So what they do here is they have the the Japanese gangsters come in um, and kill someone in the middle of a restaurant, yeah. And you've got the mafia there who, you know, as Western audiences, were like, the mafia are bad news. But even the mafia are like, you know what? These guys are too hardcore for us. We're not even going to get involved <laughs> in this nonsense. Yeah. It's not worth it, lads. Let's just sit down and eat our rigatoni. <laughs> <laughs> but I just think that's a really good way for the audience to go, oh, no, these guys are bad news. Mm. Yeah, if you usurp the um, the status quo yeah. or the accepted status quo or the perceived status quo at the time, then, yeah, I never thought about it like that. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a super move, isn't it, really? Yeah, mm. and this, uh, this gang who come in and assassinate... Um, you, you know other Japanese gangsters. Uh, they're led by uh, uh, is it Sato? 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 Yeah. Sato. 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 I want to um, get it right because Ken, uh, Ken Takakura keeps on correcting Douglas later on, and I don't want to be the stupid Westerner who says it like him. <laughs> um, and he's played by Yusaku uh, Matsuda, who this is his last film role, and he was actually making this movie when he was terminally ill with bladder cancer and he didn't tell oh, Ridley wow. Scott. And Oh, seriously? Yeah, and he died before the film's premiere. Oh, no. Uh, and he decided to do the no movie because way. he would live forever in that sense by oh, doing wow. this movie. So, oh, man. And it's a great performance as well as the as the big baddie. Oh, it's super, yeah, yeah, it's super. He's very unhinged, isn't he? Like, yeah, uh, he's got yeah. a mad darkness to him. Uncontrollable quality. And I think what um, Vincent and Nick do here is good is they let the violence play out because obviously it's a 
restaurant packed full of people. They don't draw their guns or anything. And then as uh, Sato and his crew uh, make a run for it, uh, they chase them down then. They don't just start plugging people in the restaurant or anything <laughs> like that. And there's a really good chase that's quite tense through the meatpacking section of New York, yes. isn't there? Yeah. It's a really good section. It's great because it tells stories. You know, like um, restaurant scenes in movies are always quite good. <laughs> you know, like they're always all right for telling stories and character development and stuff like that and fleshing out the world that you're in. Um, that's why I think like there's so many good ones in the mob movies. You know, there's yeah, loads yeah. of great restaurant scenes in mob movies. This is another really good one. Absolutely. So Nick chases Sato down, doesn't he? Mm. And they get into quite a quite. A, uh, he's getting asphyxiated, isn't he? Because Sato gets a drop oh, on horrendous. him, and then yeah. Nick is quite capable, so he manages to fight him off. Um, he gets knifed in the face, but then Charlie's on him, and then. Then they think they've arrested him, and then he manages to wriggle free again and start fighting again. And it's like this guy is is legit. He's a he's a tough dude. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's it's a, again, it's really good. And and all that sort of impenetrability and inability for them to catch him keeps adding to his character that he is absolutely wild and capable of anything. Um, but they yeah they catch Sata, mm. and it's decree. You know. Uh, Nick wants to have him banged to rights and banged yeah. up here in New York, but he can't because got to send him back to uh, to Japan. So they are entrusted, him and Andy Garcia, Charlie, are entrusted to take him home. Brilliant scene on the plane. There's no need to punch him, though, is there? <laughs> no, no. I think it's more like as an artefact of uh, yay old day 80s travel <laughs> when you could just... Drink and smoke wildly through flight. <laughs> <laughs> Ten hour flight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just so cool. Um, and he plays solitaire all the way through and elbows his, you know, the guy in his custody in the head. <laughs> when they get off the plane at the other end, though, um, they're met there by um, the police department, but it's not no. the police department. Double cross. This bit was so good. I so that you just. I loved it. Just that they just assumed people show their badges and, and they don't know any better they've never been to japan before so they're just like yeah all right fine here you go and then as they're getting off the plane <laughs> the real cops come and they're just like oh shit he wasn't oh <laughs> we've been totally done <laughs> yeah. um, was it they, they showed some insurance papers or something yeah <laughs> like yeah that some insurance paperwork just these two uh americans abroad just immediately outsmarted and they've not even got off the plane yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to ingrati- ingratiate him with uh, internal affairs back home, is it? He's already on the ship. Not going to look good. Palming them off as soon as he gets, you know, he's not even off the plane. He's palming the back. Delivers off. him straight back to the to the gangsters. There you go. <laughs> yeah, this starts this this sort of trend of the film. Not trend of the film. This perception, sorry, of the film that there is um, a xenophobic quality to it. I don't believe there is. I believe that the xenophobia that is obvious in this first half of the film is usurped and replaced later on. And I think it's more of an instructional piece as we go forward. I think it's one of those where, like, I mean, not none of us are like qualified to sort of say whether the representation of Japanese people is accurate or not. Mm, mm. But then I also don't think the people who are saying it is offensive and it is a bit racist, I don't think they're qualified to say that either. So yes, I'm. I'm because there are certain things in this. Um, I worked on something uh, last year. It was like a little mini doc thing. 
where uh, Jamie, Jamie Lang from The Only Way is Essex went to Japan with uh, Hugo Monnier, the ex-rugby player, and they uh, just took in all the Japanese culture and, you know, try and sort of embed themselves into that world. And when I was editing that this, this little mini doc and going through all the footage and watching the episodes finished and talking to the pair of them when they came back, the way you saw things and the way they said things, you would go, this is very prejudice and very stereotypical of what you would think a Japanese person is or the Japanese community are like. But those things of like, um, you know, the values they have of like integrity and honour and things like that. I think that is part of their culture. And I don't think it's fair to go, oh, you're just being racist by assuming that that's... Yes, there are bits in this where it is a very much through the lens of a white American person. Well, in the case of Ridley Scott, a white British person, a Westerner, um, in the, through the eyes of a Westerner. But I don't think it crosses the line at any point. Um, it's awkward in places. That. It's awkward in places, and it's a bit like, uh, is that bad? I don't really know. But I don't think you could say for sure whether it is or not. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tough one, and I think maybe this is the reason why this film has been brushed under the carpet over the years because possibly there's this worry that it it can be seen as a as a a prejudiced relic of um, arrogant the arrogant West invading the East sort of thing. I, I don't think it is because I feel like it's a, a the story is about um, a cop going to Japan who is lauded in a way, because he's in a movie, he's the main character in a Hollywood movie, he's lauded as the best that America has to offer. And they always talk about that, don't they? You know, about the best the Americans. The Americans do everything best. And he goes over there and he's wildly corrupt. He's deeply flawed. And that's all on a character level that's obvious to us all. He's painted as a very flawed character, Nick. And he does reach his own redemption. And in that sense... Don't we all? Because we're all involved in this journey. So I don't see this as a racist artifact whatsoever. I see it more of an instructional piece. I know I used that word before, but I really do. Yeah, I, I think it, it's certainly something to discuss, and there's certainly elements there to have a conversation and be on both sides of the argument. But in my case, I, it, I'm not sure it is like particularly. Yeah. I mean, some of it is broad stroke, isn't it? Because they're trying to put forward the cultural clashes. In there, and I don't. I think the film makes a very clear point that uh, Nick and Andy Garcia's character Vincent, they come over there and they're a pair of blowhard Americans, right? And they're trying to trample all over the process. And their way is not the right way. It's just the gung ho, arrogant Westerners coming in there and trying to stamp their authority on something. And they have to learn to cooperate with the local authorities. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the one. Everything is everything is sort of happening. Uh, they're involved at the the police station. They're not ingratiating themselves with the locals. They're awful. Oh, they're being such dicks. They're just like, this is not how we do it in New York. Well, you're not in fucking New York now, are you? And let's be honest, right? If we're chucking insults around, you've just given the the murder, <laughs> the suspect <laughs> to the gangsters. So well done, lads. Why don't you just pipe down and let us crack on with things? Yeah. Now you're lucky we've given you a, a chair to sit on. To be honest. <laughs> The trouble you've given us. Yeah, you should be in a cell, to be honest, because you're probably in on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, they're unbelievably rude and their hosts are incredibly egregious and look after them. Yeah. They start kicking off and they get told that they're allowed to be observers 
uh, of the process, but that the Japanese police will be handling this moving forward, but they can come along for the ride because they're sort of involved. Because Nick is like, he's my collar. It's like, you're not even in your own jurisdiction. You're not in your own country, so how can this be your jurisdiction anymore? Poor old Ken Takakura, who plays uh, Masahiro, he gets palmed off. So he's uh, one of the detectives. And he gets saddled with looking after these two Westerners uh, and keeping them in line, essentially, and trying to teach them that this is not how the Japanese police police, essentially. Uh, and they're constantly butting up against him. And then they go to a nightclub where a murder has been committed. Mm. And uh, this is very much 80s Cedo Michael Douglas, obviously having his eyes on all of the ladies in the establishment. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Cedo! What, <laughs> what an expression! <laughs> like a seedy man with perversions. I just okay. <laughs> when they get to Japan, you know, this is where it just all looks amazing, and the lighting is oh, ace, yeah. and you've so got that great, classic like um, Ridley Scott. He did it in Blade Runner, where you've got the shadow of a spinning fan like cascading on the wall. Yeah, oh, it's just it just looks great, but it's not like overly polished either. It feels like it's it's got like a a sense of don't like saying gritty realism, but it's got that like. This is the underground of Japan, the the, the underbelly of Japan. No, I, I it's totally not, agree, It's man. not it, the shiny tourist side of it. No. Yes, it feels like um, this was um, playtime for Yander Bond, like changing rooms. Like it was like, right, we've got this set. What are you going to do in an hour? Yeah. <laughs> you know, are you going to make this look unbelievable? Yeah, yeah. And he always manages it. But he's it, like you say, sir, he doesn't manage it to a super polished point. Mm-hmm. It's always like he's got like, right, we've got this set. We make it look amazing. I think it's indelible. I think like the look of this film will live live long with me afterwards. It's yeah. so slick. It's, it's really so, slick. so cool. Because like after this club bit where they find um, this murdered dude in the, and it, it, there's a lot of like expositional bits going in which you know yeah. we don't really want to get bogged down in but i think he gets a bit too bogged down in the in the actual crime case to be honest like i no, prefer no. it more when the stakes are more personal it's like i don't really give a shit about the you know the counterfeit money operation that they've got going on here yeah um, and it's like warring yeah. yakuza isn't it it's like between yeah, an yeah. old an old boss and and uh, sato is like a, a, a the as i say the the younger Sort of breaking traditions of the the yes. nobility of the yakuza, yeah, all that like backstory, which is no no interest to Douglas. He just wants to catch Sato yeah. and, and go back home, man. really, yeah. and get his man. But like as as um as Nick and Charlie are leaving, and they're walking down, and it, and it, it it's it's like a shot from Blade Runner. It's like it looks like a self homage to Blade Runner, where yeah, you've got rows of bikes. And then there's wet pavement, and there's neon lights everywhere. You know, reflect all the lights are reflecting off this wet pavement, and it's just that like really wide shot from a slight angle with the two silhouettes walking down the road. And he's just like fucking Ridley Scott knows how to shoot a fucking movie, doesn't he? This is why this felt like a dream team, Ridley Scott and Yander Bond. It's just it's so good. It's so good on the eye. This movie, yeah. Yeah, and then it all just pushes on from here. They're ba- it's basically just a let's crack the case story, isn't it? Let's try and find these guys, yeah. figure out you know who's at the heart of this counterfeit money ring. And they raid an apartment, don't they, to, to sort of try and locate. And again, it's a really well-cut sequence just when they're raiding this apartment. Mm. It's, just, it's just a fucking technically... It's really crisp filmmaking, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, really technically sp- 
spot on filmmaking. Enjoyed it all. Yeah. Like everything of us enjoyed it all so much. Things take another gear, don't they, when they go to um a, a sort of Sato safe house. Yeah. They get a tip. Mm. And they go there and it's like um it's a bathhouse and he recognizes one of the people there as someone who was on the plane who duped him. Uh this is Nick, sorry. Um and um they get he nicks some bills, doesn't he? He does, yeah. And he uses them to sort of to prove that they're counterfeit and yeah, very brave burning hundred dollar bills just in case they might be counterfeit. <laughs> well, yeah, because he he's on the. This is where we find out why he's in trouble back home, and because he's stolen this money again, they're like, oh, he's just fucking Nick skimming off the top of the the mafiosas yeah. again, doing it in Japan. But he's like, oh, it's because this is why, and he. He sort of gets himself off the hook, doesn't he? He's like, it's counterfeit. That's why I yeah. took it, so I could prove it's counterfeit. <laughs> because Masahiro, I'm I'm completely on his side here. He sees Nick pinch the money from the crime scene, yeah? Right? And he goes off, cavalier, starts burning the money. Masahiro doesn't know that. He thinks he's just pocketed, so he reports it to his superiors. And then Nick, all he had to do was say, I think this might be counterfeit. Should we go and test it? Yeah. Right. That's it. Just work work with your colleagues. Stop being such a tosser, right? And then you've got like Charlie Vincent like going, hey, hey, yeah, go on, Nick, go and burn it. Go and burn it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, no, Charlie Vincent's like, burn it in me dinner. Yeah, yeah. Go on, burn it in me, right in me dinner. I'll do anything for you, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> are we going karaoke later? <laughs> uh, right. We jolly are. And then we jolly are. And then they meet up at the club later on and, um, and they're trying to have peace talks. And to be fair to Charlie, He's trying to he's trying to mediate it so that Massa and um, and Nick can get on the same page and start working together. And um, and you know Massa and Charlie start bonding. Nick is off talking to Kate Capshaw, who's only in there to give him like little bits of information when the when the plot <laughs> demands it. Essentially, she <laughs> off. Like, it's like it's the only person he can talk to because obviously he doesn't speak Japanese. Yeah, because there's a really good technique in this film, isn't there? Where all the Japanese speaking act none of it's subtitled yeah. um for like the fir- for like three quarters of the movie. And so we we're just as lost as much as Nick and Charlie are because they have no idea what these people are saying. Yeah. And it's like us, I because I was like, as Amazon messed up, am I supposed to know what these people you know, I'm supposed <laughs> yeah. to know what these Japanese guys are saying? But it, it's quite a good it, it's quite good, isn't it, really? That it's clever, yeah, lost as them. It's really smart smart decision the subtitles are only present when nick isn't present in the scene so when you've got japanese characters talking to each other yes but nick isn't there then you get subtitle but when he's there there are no subtitles so that you're as confused as he is in the uh in the moment very good very good which is just it's a small touch but it's a good one i mean it took me half an hour to realize that's what they were going for (laughs) (laughs) but you're right it's a thing that adds to your immersion and uh, to your connection with certain characters. Enjoyed that. Uh, and then we end up uh, in one of the scenes of the movie, in the underground car park after they've oh. been on the razzle-dazzle. Can I just say in that nightclub as well, karaoke, a bit hit and miss at the best of times, karaoke with a live band, are you <laughs> actually take That is a recipe for disaster. Obviously, Charlie well, takes over it, it like he's... 
fucking Ricky Martin. Like it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. But him and Massa bond, don't they? And they uh, get a good rapport going. They do some Ray oh, Charles oh, music. James, and-, it, and they do. But it's not just a live band. It's a live band, and they're the words are in a book. Ridiculous. That you pass around. Absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> like a great big fat yellow pages. Like anyone want the hymn sheet? And everyone's absolutely shit faced as well. So how anyone makes it through a song <laughs> is anybody's guess. So funny. I'd say it looks like a brilliant night. Oh yeah. Yeah, well, they, well, Kate Capshaw's running the show, isn't she? And it's a uh, it's a very uh, well run operation. Very much so. Yeah, very much very. so. Um, so yeah, this scene downstairs in the actually it's downstairs. It's in the underground sort of car park area. The bikers catch up with um, with Charlie, and uh, Nick is on the other side of a like a shutter barrier thing. But it's one of those ones that's like, um, what is it? It doesn't sheet matter. Metal, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to explain it. It's useless. Um, but he can see what's going on, but he can't get to Charlie. And I wasn't expecting it. No. I was. <laughs> you were. Because you were rubbing your hands, James. Like, I, I come on, Charlie. I think once you find out that. Andy Garcia is going to Japan with Michael Douglas at the, uh, you know, at the end of the first act. It's pretty clear Charlie ain't coming back. From <laughs> Did you guys know this? I didn't know this at all. I didn't. I mean, as soon as this sort of scene started to kick off and his coat got nicked, and th- I was like, it's oh, his own fault is, again. This is not going to end well for, yeah. for old Charlie, is it? This is T Rex lawyer territory. I mean. Out of all the ways it can end for him, this is, it's not a good one, this. <laughs> out of all again, the ways to go. <laughs> it's really well edited again. And uh, yeah, he gets cornered by the mi- motorcycle band. Uh, mi- motorcycle band? Motorcycle, ga- <laughs> motorcycle gang. He wasn't the band from, well, it might <laughs> be the band from the club. All in. Right, we're finished, lads. Let's get on the Yamahas. Yeah, we had enough of that <laughs> terrible singing. Now let's go and do him in the underground <laughs> Uh, and they start slicing him up don't they and then all of a sudden Sato comes out of nowhere and he produces a samurai sword and Nick's like on the other side of this uh, raw iron sheeting isn't he like no Charlie get out of there Charlie get out of there and then Sato oh he basically motors his way towards Charlie produces the sword and chops his silly little head off. <laughs> <laughs> did you did you cheer at that point, James? <laughs> <laughs> Yahoo! <laughs> he went down in installments. It was it was like a controlled demolition the way he had to go. What I did find interesting was, you know, like after the beheading, because that's what it was. Yeah. Um, Douglas went like, oh. Yeah. What he does first is he screams in slow motion like Charlie, <laughs> and then he goes, "Ah, oh, that was always going to happen." <laughs> you sing karaoke that bad, you yeah. will end up. <laughs> That's right. The members of the band will get their bikes and slash you. <laughs> <laughs> it's proper high stakes stuff. To what's going on in Japan? If they don't help apprehend Sato, they're probably going to prison when they get back. To- Back to the States. Yeah. He's, he's treating it like a holiday, Charlie. He's having a right laugh. <laughs> he's doing what we don't do. Let's, let, come on, fellas. It's gone 5pm. Let's get on the razzle-dazzle. <laughs> Karaoke bar with the Yamaha bikers on on, <laughs> on percussion. On the keto. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, 
but I, I again, I'm enjoying everything here. Yeah. Really enjoying it. Uh, and then we get to what happens after this? Oh, it's Charlie's dead, and um, Mass goes to see Nick. Nick, yeah. of course, goes to commiserate with Kate Capshaw because he's only met her sort of like for two seconds twice. Um, I know he's a bit of a drag on Kate Capshaw. She must be like, oh, God. What's this, this guy, guy doing here? Is oh. he, how's he got up here? I bet he's called Nick. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, Massa gives Nick a gun, his gun back, doesn't he? Because they get their guns taken yes. off them by the cops. And um, he, Massa sort of masquerades it as this Japanese tradition that when a friend dies, you get to pick one of their belongings. Yeah. Um, and he includes charlie's gun in that so he's like i can have the gun and he's like yes that's that's what i'm doing take the gun yeah, you yeah. fucking idiot um, <laughs> read between the lines you yeah. <laughs> so then it's uh yeah so 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 this is that just nick now full steam ahead trying to catch the baddies with his and gun. massa is on board and i've got to say i love ten takakura in this movie. Yeah, I think he's, he's really so good. Nice. Do you know he didn't actually speak English at all? He had to just learn Seriously? his lines and the intonations and things like that. Um, mm, like preparing amazing. for days and days just so he could hit those lines and say them convincingly. That's amazing. But what we don't know as Westerners is he's like a huge... He was, sorry, he's, he passed away in 2014. He was a huge movie star in Japan. He was described as the Japanese Clint Eastwood. Oh wow! Like so, the set was constantly mobbed with fans and things because uh, Ken Takakura was in this movie with Michael Douglas. Like that, they were more interested in Ken rather than <laughs> MD. Of course, they were in association with Michael Douglas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I absolutely love it because he's brilliant in this. I think he's the heart. Oh, he is. The film. He is the moral yeah. compass and heart of the yeah. film. Yeah, I love him. You know, when they try to convince him, even back, you know, I know we're sort of slight backstep, but to the karaoke bar, like the, yeah. um, Charlie's convincing him to come and get involved and stuff like that, and he's he's so reticent. The fact he's so reluctant to come over. I love all that. And when he eventually does and he sits down and has a beer with them and then then ends up doing karaoke, I love well, all that it, stuff. He, he has a delightful cocktail, actually. Yeah, he does, yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, well, he's, he's when got... they find him, he's like sat at the bar with something that is is more grand and more camp than a pina colada. <laughs> he's got a Del Boy drink, basically. It's, it's superb. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the, the pair of them, basically, now they're sort of like mates now. They're, they, you know, they've, they've got a common goal um, and they... They stake out like a steel mill, don't they, to sort of yeah. mm. to try and get. I've to got them. it's the smelting factory from Terminator Two. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's, yes, I think things. that's right. Uh, slash the the sort of like the back end or possibly the outhouse bit of the uh, well, wherever they were in Time Cop. Yeah, <laughs> there's a hint of that going on as well. <laughs> sort of like there's like some dark, bright fire stuff going on in the machine yeah, yeah. over there. Yeah, beware yeah. of that. Um, and it's really tense this bit, isn't it? Well, you know, because they're sort of yeah. hiding in the shadows, like you know, waiting for you know to find out everything in the right moment, sort of go in and try and apprehend them. And it's just yeah, really tense, really full of suspense. And again, it's just just masters at work again. I'm say, say it all the time. There's just so yeah. many scenes of this caliber and quality throughout this film, which is definitely you know why it's good. 
And then he gives chase to Sato, who gets away. And but then he, he gets sort of stopped by the cops who try and send him back to the states because they've had enough. They've had a tipful. Mm. <laughs> like, get him <laughs> out of there! <laughs> He's worse than the criminal. Get him gone. <laughs> <laughs> My favourite expression that is too rude for me to repeat. I absolutely <laughs> love that expression. <laughs> but he, he, you know, he's he's made a smarter stuff. Is Nick? He manages to get off the plane by. Uh, Hiding in a waiter. <laughs> it's it's brilliant. It, that is so, so nice. That sequence. His little mulleted face as he's going down. Like, it's so good. <laughs> as the door shuts, his little cheeky face. It's so brilliant. I loved all of that escape. Loved every bit of this. Uh, enjoyed it all and again it must be said that um, throughout all these scenes I mean like we've gone from Douglas's partner has been killed um, now he's hell bent on revenge he's convinced Mass to go along with him and Douglas is so convicted exhibits such conviction in this period of the movie well Ian's right the way through but he's super in it and you can't help but go along with him he's a movie star acting his bum off it's great. I love it all. Even when he escapes through the dumpway. <laughs> I just say it's so great. I am there. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it becomes so he starts playing the gangsters off against each other, don't they? So um basically they're after this counterfeit plate, don't they, that makes the best counterfeit money, which is what all the squabbling was about at the very yeah. start of the film, squabbling. Someone did gangland <laughs> murdered in, in a restaurant. Squabbling. Mild couples. Handbags. Yeah. It was very, where's my lunch money? Yes. As he garroted him in front of a <laughs> restaurant full of people. And what Nick does is he basically says, right, have a meeting with him and I'll take him out. So he's sort of playing the gangsters off against each other, doesn't it? Um, mm. And... This leads to uh, the finale. Yes, on a f- it's like is it a, like a rice farm or something like that? Mm. I think it's a winery, uh, but you'll probably notice that the light changes quite significantly during this point because this wasn't shot in Japan; it was shot in <laughs> Napa County, California. <laughs> no, really. <laughs> uh, apparently, uh, oh my god, uh, Scott had such a, a a terrible time shooting this movie in Japan because they're because ve- uh, they were very. Uh, strict on the rules like if he was in a location and he'd gone over the time that he had allotted to shoot there so an official would literally come and stand in front of the camera so they couldn't shoot anymore yeah. so he vowed he was Whoa. never going to shoot anything in japan ever again and i don't know if it was a scheduling conflict or not but he had to shoot the finale in in california just 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 keep to your time <laughs> just do that yeah. stop running the ragged ridley <laughs> Uh, so yeah, this uh, Californian winery uh, is the mad. setting for the for the standoff. And Absolutely, mad. it's Sato with the with the yakuza bosses, and he he double crosses them, doesn't he? So while uh, Massa and Nick are sort of ready to what's the word ambush, storm it, yes, ready to ambush this meeting, they notice that there's all Sato's goons causing a mischief outside and yeah. about to do He's the same goonies. thing. His goonies. Um, and again, this is a, a really tense scene, you know, all this build up to this this finale. And then Bedlam, it goes pops absolutely banal. <laughs> You've got henchmen being squibbed through doors, things exploding in slow motion. Um, Lovely Atri's trope of when someone, uh, when a man gets shot, if he's holding an Uzi, the Uzi goes off as he's dying in slow motion. <laughs> <laughs> 
There's a real squib city. Like it's absolutely <laughs> glorious. There's a really like focused shot of a bed sheet blowing up. <laughs> it's juicy. Yeah, it's shot. great. You just one. see the it's... squib in the bed sheet. I know. Into I saw it. That. <laughs> well, that's about it's to blow super. up, isn't it? <laughs> There's a brilliant, um, immediately after the bedsheet, there is the biggest henchman I've ever seen who should have had a much bigger role in this film. <laughs> he's so big that you you he's in the background of the scene, but you think he's in the foreground. <laughs> it's only when his weapon is behind other people's heads do you realise that he's not <laughs> at the front of the shot. Um, Enjoyed it all. Again, you called it when you said that when you got that bit with the bikes at the beginning, yeah, he was yeah. going to come back to that. And... Part of me was a little bit like, yes, this is pretty babyish now. <laughs> that they're both cycling off into the distance. Motorcycling off, yeah, not pedal biking. Lovely. That would have been so much better. <laughs> a muddy BMX chase. <laughs> Doing kickflips uh, uh, over Stockport, some miles. Where, you, where you'd get <laughs> yeah. injured in time for Monday morning. <laughs> cool. um, but what surprised me was obviously they... Ha- they they catch up with each other. Big face-off. There's a great big spike in the ground, and Nick is thinking, shall yeah. I do him in? Shall I do him in? But he walks into the police station. Great cut. Love that he cut so him, much. Doesn't he I was, re- I was thinking... He's the bigger man. Yeah. Now. Well, I think that's the difference between a star for me in this movie. What, not not impaling the bad guy on a, <laughs> on a wooden spike? On a spike? No, but the fact that... Because I, I, I felt like the way it was going... That it was going to be, he was yeah. going to get. Oh, it was definitely backdropped into onto that. Yeah. I impaled this yakuza on a wooden spike. On spy. a <laughs> <laughs> um, And and um, then there's a lovely finale. The, in the, the sort airport, of like Tom yeah. Cruise in um, the Last Samurai scene, where he's accepted by the the culture and he accepts the culture. He's deeply respectful. He does something really respectful in that he doesn't take the evidence from the crime scene and become (laughs) a... (laughs) Oh, what an honourable guy he is at the end. It's like, oh, here's the evidence that's gone missing in a lovely little present to you, Massa. (laughs) Yeah. I've changed. (laughs) Just heading back to New York to corrupt more lives. (laughs) The the final... The final moments of this film are so eighties. It's oh, really it's great. funny. The song is I building, and you know it's about to like fire. What a song, by the way! Flipping it. He signs off with a thumbs up in the distance, doesn't he? It's just oh, it's got it all. And the song over it's the so credits is—is just... is it Michael McDonald? It sounds like Michael McDonald. I don't think. Oh, it is I don't it. know who it is. It's outstanding. We'll have to find out. Apparently, the song at the end of uh, Black Rain is. I'll be holding on by Greg Ullman. It's a proper on Greg the nose. Greg Ullman, oh, yes. wow! It's a it's a great eighties. We could really make a playlist of gorgeous credit songs from the eighties. We really could. Oh. We really could. I mean, Rocky Four would feature heavily. Mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah, <laughs> the majority of the soundtrack would be. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely super. Um, and go on, Rob, say the line. Thus endeth the movie. <laughs> Has that become a line? That's now? the line, yeah. And thus Is it wicked? So, what do wicked. we think after the credits roll? Does does uh, Nick go home and fe- confess to the fact that he has been skimming off the top because he got a divorce, basically, and he still wants to send his kids to private school? Like that's the reason that he's a corrupt cop. 
<laughs> no, it finished. Um, and I assume, I assume he got away with everything. <laughs> so, <laughs> he didn't fast up to anything. He's back in America he now. Of course he didn't. He took his lovely honour that he'd, he'd earned in Japan. And then he went He went right on home. Flushed it straight Probably down the toilet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, right. Let's go favourite bits. Let's go there. Because we're going to get the chance to sum up. Let's have some favourite bits. Okay, so for me, uh, the joke response is obviously it's a toss-up between when Nick dad runs through a fireball at the shootout oh, in the, yeah. sm- the smelting <laughs> factory. <laughs> that is nuts. Or his hilarious stunt double on the motorcycles towards the end. <laughs> I was thinking... I was thinking when that was happening, I was like, I really hope this is Douglas. And then it cuts on. Like, nope, it's a really bad stunt double. <laughs> it's a Patrick Swayze. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, Charlie getting decapitated was a was a highlight. Oh, um, <laughs> but, but no, the serious answer is uh, when Massa shows up to see Nick in the wake of Charlie's death. Um, first of all, it's an amazing performance from Ken uh, Takakura. The introduction of the tradition is when someone uh, close to us dies, you take a personal item. So Nick finding the gun in the box and selecting that as the item. The score sort of switches from tender to big drums and keyboards, and the whole movie switches to let's kick some ass mode. And <laughs> yeah. uh, Massa is all in, albeit in a very reserved and respectful sense. Agreed. Yeah. That is the, that is the turning point, isn't it, of the movie? Yeah. I just think that oh, the yeah. score is fucking fantastic i wonder if you can get it it really is it really is it'll be on spotify somewhere won't it yeah i hope so i really hope so it's it's one of zimmer's best scores i think i just absolutely goes so many places (laughs) but uh yeah my favorite bit was um again linked to the music actually was when they're having the fist fight at the end in the mud and nick is getting absolutely owned by sato he's getting pummeled (laughs) um looks like he's about to lose but then (laughs) But then a few licks of Hans Zimmer's guitar, and it just goes, and then it inspires him to victory. <laughs> I just love it. It's true. But yeah, I just think, like, just the general way this film is shot, I just think, and lit is just great. Favourite bits across across it all. Yeah, like one overall moment of enjoyment. Yeah. What about you, Rob? There were a couple of cheeky nut shots in this movie. <laughs> yeah. They really were. Oh, yeah. Someone got their winkle picker obliterated <laughs> at one stage. Um, but I can't remember it well enough to cite it now. Um, but I do think that that moment where Douglas is wearing his outfit in this point is... We've not talked about his clothes. I mean, his leather jacket saves like his life towards the end, doesn't good. he? Oh, yeah. Really oh, does. Oh, like, yeah, on the tire, <laughs> Bike wheel. His hair shades jacket combo is amazing. But we get a moment where we see what's beneath all of that, and it's some sort of like undershirt effort with a badge around his neck. And that's when he shotguns some dude, which blows up a gas tank, and then he runs through the flame. And he doesn't give a rat's pajamas about the flame when he runs through it. And that's my favorite bit. He strolls through that thing. Did that stuntman die? <laughs> Did he die? <laughs> he literally it's not far from the source of the flame. He's just like, yeah. The way that the we're going through here that the shot is composed. Of, I don't know if it's because they pulled focus or not, but it literally looks like he runs through the middle of the fire. Yeah, no, it really it does. Absolutely it? does. It's a bonkers stunt for the sake of 
half a second around it into the fire. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Crazy bastard. Uh, so let's do a bit of a summary here because I mean I don't know how you guys want to do it. FYR. Let's go, James. Let's do that. We've got a rotation going. Let's stick with that. James, FYR. Okay, so I was so pumped for this movie going in to the point that I think I described it to you guys as my most anticipated film of the year. You did. (laughs) As a result, it did struggle to live up to the lofty expectations that I had for it. So that's, that's on me. That's not on the film, really. I found the pacing a little slow in parts and I never really connected with Douglas's character. I don't think he's bad in the movie. It's just for me, I didn't think he was neither good enough, like a good enough cop or renegade enough for my personal taste in this, in this particular genre. That being said, there's still loads to love here. Not least the sumptuous visuals, Hans Zimmer's Eastern influence, pulsating score, the Squib City gunfights when they arrive, and the excellent Japanese cast, especially uh, Ken Takakura as Masahiro, who I absolutely loved in this movie. I thought he was fantastic. All the elements are here, and it is a solid thriller, but ultimately I just wanted a bit more given the pedigree of everyone involved. For me, I like the movie. I don't love it. And funnily enough, I just feel like the movie would have benefited greatly had Tony rather than Ridley Scott been behind the camera. I think he would have oh, brought some interesting. gonzo energy to it. I think this is I think this material is closer to what Tony Scott sort of built his career on. Absolutely. Whereas Ridley's more of a serious you know, a more uh arty, artful and serious and awards friendly filmmaker than Tony was and I just feel like this material would have been a better fit for Tony and funnily enough when I was doing the research I found that this was initially the storyline for Beverly Hills Cop 2 which Tony Scott then went on to direct (laughs) wow so yeah I I liked it I think it's definitely worth watching I just didn't love it as much as I wanted to but that's partly down to my own expectations and the amazing poster (laughs) (laughs) I'm definitely with you on that but it's definitely like the, this is the film. If if uh, Tony Scott and Ridley Scott's career was to cross over, that point mm. where they cross is Black Rain, isn't it? <laughs> is yeah. the, this is the most Tony Scott Ridley Scott film. <laughs> like it's very very similar. I'm with you on a lot of those points, James. On one hand, for me, there are some quite outdated elements, awkward moments between the leads, which I struggled with quite a bit, and then a bit of an off kilter tone that thrust Douglas into the role of tough guy of a tough guy lead that i'm not sure he pulls off the jury's out the jury's still out i i've warmed to it a bit more now we've chatted about it but this was like at the time wasn't quite sure whether he pulled it off however on the other hand there are flashes of ridley scott at his very best here you've got yanderbont working absolute magic with a camera hans zimmer providing a multi-layered marvel of a score and tom rolf just cutting all the action scenes to perfection so much so where it's just Like, I said it like three or four times, like, fuck, this is cut so well. Um, So there's just plenty of amazing stuff to get out of this, particularly on a technical level. Um, I don't think David Nusser was too far off when he called it a relic of the 80s, but I wouldn't say it deserves to stay there. Um, And considering it seems like a completely lost film, um, at least for the the three of us, because we've never bloody heard of it, 
Um, it might be worth blowing the cobwebs off this one just to see Andy Garcia get his head lobbed off with a wacky sashi. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the tiny sword is, by the way, I think. Oh, lovely. <laughs> yeah, it is a little thing. It's very precise when he swizzes his head right off. <laughs> Mad stuff. Um, I agree with you both. Um, I'm going to start with the negatives. Um, I think this film from the hour to hour 40 mark sags big time. Mm. Um, If it didn't sag big time and it tightened up that period, I think we're looking at one of my favorite top 10 films of all time. (laughs) I adored this. I thought Douglas was incredible. Um, I I, honestly, I think it might be his best role ever. Uh, His his best acting ever. Honestly, I'd, I think um, the film technically is faultless. I cannot find a solitary fault with the technical delivery of this. The cast is outstanding. I was really won over. I was worried that I was going to find it insensitive, etc. But I did find enough in Nick's arc to say that it wasn't. Um, that I'm happy for anyone to say that, that they didn't feel that way about it because that's all a very personal thing. But I absolutely love this. And if I can shock you, it's my film of the year in 2021. <laughs> nice. So when, when we do the end of year, uh, what's the, the best film? <laughs> Will it still be It's there? my favourite film, yeah. I, I've got to be honest, Like for everything that I want to enjoy when I sit down and watch something, this had everything for me and, and a bit more. It was. It felt very. It felt very Rob Parker film. I just think. Oh, it is. Yeah, yeah. It, it definitely is. For a film like this, it was just maybe missing a couple of fist fights or like kung fu. I totally agree. No, I totally agree. But I'm glad they didn't because Sorry, this karate, elevates it from that kind of fair. Uh, no, uh, either jujitsu or you know jeet kune do. My preferred mode of dispatch for the villains. Um, but no, seriously, like there is something to be said for. I know we laugh a lot about the Seagal and Van Damme movies, but they always came in about an hour, an hour and a half, hour forty. Yeah, and you always had those beats, and there was the right, 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 right villain time, baddies fight, end fight, done. And this sagged in that area between mm. you know it was a forty minute sag. If we can tighten that down, get this down to one hour forty, one hour forty five, or do something more with those scenes. Are we talking about the film or or our podcast? <laughs> 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 the film, the film. But it would be one of my favourite films of all time, I think, in that sense. I think Douglas is magnetic. He's a brilliant 80s presence. He's got, uh, yeah, I was just, jury's out for me on the, like, I, he's great at the, the spiel stuff and, you know, his, oh, I his know presence what you mean. on no, screen. I... But it's the, it's the tough man bit. I'm just like, yeah, doing this in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, no, I do, I do know exactly what you mean. But his attitude is right there. There's only one man going through that spike at the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, but the fact that they didn't do that, yeah, it added a star. It was a four star movie for me up to that point. But the fact they didn't chin him through the spike, five star. Oh wow, nice. Yeah. Well, I, I'm glad we finally watched it. I'm glad we ticked it off. Yeah, it was definitely worth watching. Next time I see Phil, I'm gonna. I bet he'll be really happy that we watched it. 
Oh no! Please tell him he's changed my life. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what is it next week? This is just the first of the rain of what is it? The rainy season. Rainy season. The rainy season. <laughs> the rainy season on FYR. So next week it is Rain of Fire, the Christian Bale, Matthew McConaughey. All right, all right, all right. Uh, Fight dragons. I am very surprised this pulled in so many votes. To be honest, very surprised. Oh, I'm not. It's so good. Sorry, spoiler alert. It's great. I can't wait to watch it again. Watch me think it's appalling next week. (laughs) Uh, Thank you very much, fellas. It's been a lovely, um, well, evening discussing something brought to our attention. Fabulous. Um, Please give us five stars in your subscription service of choice. Tune in next time for Rain of Fire, part of the rainy season on FYR. And yeah, thank you for everything. Tune in next time. Say goodbye, boys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Anyone want to go karaoke? <laughs> With the yellow pages? If Andy Garcia's going, no chance. Oh, no. <laughs> Andy Garcia sans head, perhaps. That is not, that is not nice.